Amen. While you are standing, grab your Bibles. Turn to Philippians chapter 1. Bridge kids are dismissed at this time. This is the time when our elementary age students, grades K through 5, I'm assuming all of our teachers are here, it looks like it. They're waiting on you at the back. You receive a lesson for your appropriate age group. Amen. I am so thankful to God this morning for our worship team that sang and served on this morning. They brought me into the presence of God, and I thank you so much for your service and your sacrifice. Amen. Philippians chapter 1 beginning with verse number 27. Philippians chapter 1, beginning with verse number 27. And here is how the word of the Lord reads. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Chapter 2, verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This next section has been described by some as a hymn of Christ. Some have said that this may have been sang by the early church. It may have been something that they recited as a part of the early church liturgy. This is a most powerful and wonderful uh, section of poetry. And so I would have us read verses 5 through 11 together. Let's read. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him 
and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have your seat. So we've been in this series of sermons for the last couple of weeks on gospel-worthy living from the book of Philippians. We started by talking about how Philippians is a friendship letter. It's a letter from a friend to friends. He, and we open in week one with Paul uh, identifying himself as the author and he talked about his Christian identity, that of being a slave of Christ. And, and we, we looked at Paul saying how much he loved this church at Philippi. He, 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 he talked about his, his affection for this church. And he gave them this blessed assurance that he that began a good work in them would complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Then on last week, we looked at Paul's life purpose statement where he said to live is Christ and to die is gain. That those were all introductory matters for Paul. Now we get to the heart of the letter, the body of the letter. And here is Paul's main concern and exhortation to the Philippians in chapter 1, verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Friends, that's what this whole section is about. It is about gospel-worthy living. It, it, this is what, for today's sermon, I, I am titling today's sermon, Gospel Citizenship. Why gospel citizenship? This is, I want us to look at some of the translation uh, alternatives here in the text. The literal translation of chapter 1, verse 27, in the, from the Greek text, reads this way. And it's going to be a little broken and wooden. Here's how it reads. Only worthily of the gospel of Jesus Christ be a citizen. Only worthily of the gospel of Jesus Christ be a citizen. I bring this to your attention because my literal translation removes this ter terminology of let your manner of life or, or conduct yourselves worthy of the gospel which our beloved ESV has taken that alternative. But I believe Paul is doing something very peculiar here, particular. He is referring to the idea of citizenship. The word for this idea, where, what, what the ESV translates is let your manner of life, it, it comes from the Greek word polis, which means city, hence our term metropolis. And, and, and when you, he uses a word here that literally means to be a citizen or conduct yourselves as a citizen. 
This idea of citizenship would have been at the forefront of the Philippians' mind. Philippi was a Roman colony, and therefore they enjoyed all the privileges and rights afforded to Roman citizens. Roman citizens enjoyed a certain tax relief. Roman citizens uh, uh, had special judicial rights. And so Roman citizenship during the time of the book of Philippians would have been coveted and therefore a source of pride. The Philippians were free citizens. And as Roman citizens, they would have given their total allegiance to Rome and particularly Caesar. Paul knows this, and he utilizes this knowledge to get this point across. Paul's message to the Philippians is this. Live within the Roman world with your primary allegiance to Christ and the gospel rather than the values of the Roman world. Be in Rome, but not of Rome. Said another way, Paul is essentially saying to the Philippians, you know the pride and the responsibility of living as free citizens of Rome. But remember that you have a higher allegiance to Christ that calls you to faithful conduct. Paul is essentially saying to the Philippians, you have dual citizenship. But these citizenships are not equal. I, I believe Paul is using the language of citizenship because in Philippians chapter 3, we'll see that in a couple of weeks, verse 20, he says that our citizenship is in heaven. The friends, Paul is teaching the Philippians and us that our primary allegiance is to the kingdom of heaven. And it is the gospel of the kingdom of heaven that undergirds and motivates our conduct here on earth. Church, you've heard me say this before, and I say it again. The problem in the American church today is that we are oftentimes better Americans than we are Christians. Oftentimes, we American Christians do a better job of embodying the values of our American citizenship than we do our heavenly citizenship. And friends, this ought not be. This is nothing other than idolatry. Now, 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 let me be clear. I am not saying it is idolatrous to have pride in one's country of origin. But if that pride or boasting comes at the detriment of our allegiance to the kingdom of heaven, then we commit sin. So faithful gospel citizens make for good earthly citizens. So then... What does gospel citizenship look like? I'm glad you asked. That's the rest of our text. First of all, gospel citizens pursue unity over division. Gospel citizens pursue unity 
over division. That's verses 27 through 30. First thing that Paul says after he tells them to live as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ, he says, so that whether I come to you or I am absent, I may hear that you are, here it is, standing firm in one spirit with one mind. Paul says gospel citizens stand firm in the midst of opposition. The term for standing firm, it means to hold one's ground. It's the picture of a soldier who refuses to budge one inch from his post in the face of enemy attack. And for the church, the Philippian church, this meant being firmly committed in your convictions. Paul is essentially telling them, "You, this is no time to give in to your opponent." This is no time to compromise your convictions. You have to stand firm. Don't give any ground. He says, but if you're going to do this, if you're going to stand firm, you have to be of one spirit. Now, now uh, scholars and, uh, uh, have talked about what does this idea of one spirit mean. Is he talking about the human spirit or the Holy Spirit? I believe, based on the context of the whole book, that he's referring to the Holy Spirit. Because the power for them to stand firm in the midst of opposition can only come from the Holy Spirit. He, he, I think Paul is saying you ought to rely on the power of the Holy Spirit rather than your own human spirit. Rely on the spirit rather than your own self-determination. See, if you rely on your own power, then you will give in to your opponents eventually. So you need to stand firm in the one spirit that you have. Later on in chapter 2, verse 1, he's going to talk about if there's any fellowship in the spirit. You, you will see that most, most translations, once they get to chapter 2, verse 1, they capitalize the S in spirit. But I think when we do contextual study, we have to say, what, what, how is Paul using this idea of spirit in Philippians? And what we see is he refers oftentimes to the Holy Spirit. He says, not only are you to stand firm in one spirit, but you also have to stand firm in one spirit with one mind. Now, translation issue once again. And the reason this is a big deal is because the, the way they uh, uh, translate mind here is different from the way it's used in chapter 2. This word here is pasuke, where we get our word psyche. Now, we think mind, but in, in Greek language, it actually means soul. He, he's saying, y'all have to be of one soul. That's the, 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 the nature and depth of who you really are. You have to be fellow souls. In, in other words, they were to literally be soul brothers and sisters. You're welcome. You're welcome. He says, gospel citizens stand firm. Not only do gospel citizens stand firm, but gospel citizens stand together. It's in the text. Look, look, verse 27, he says, not only are you standing firm in one spirit with one mind, but you are to live as gospel citizens by striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. That word striving there is where we get our word athletics from. It means to compete, to contend, to struggle. 
to fight together. Paul is essentially telling them, y'all have to struggle side by side. They have to stand together in order to live as gospel citizens. Friends, the focus here is on unity. The only way to overcome opposition is by standing together. This is not original to Paul. Jesus said it this way in Mark chapter 3, verses 24 through 26. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. Friends, the old adage is true. United we stand. Divided. Y'all can help me preach. He says, y'all, y'all have to fight together. But what is it that we fight for? I'm glad you asked. It's in the text. He says, we striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. We are to stand together for the gospel. What does that look like, Brent? We must fight. I believe we must fight to preserve the purity of the gospel. What does that mean? We ought to be beside ourselves when others start to water down the gospel. Friends, the gospel is not about health and wealth. The gospel is not about making one happy. The the gospel is about the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. The gospel is about what God has done to save man from his righteous and just wrath. The gospel is about God sending his one and only son to die in the place of mankind so that by believing in him, we might have eternal life. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul would say to the Galatians, there is no other gospel. We, we, we must fight to preserve the purity of the gospel. But we must also fight together over the power of the gospel. What do you mean, Brandon? Here's what Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Here's what I mean by fighting together over the power of the gospel. We we must understand that it is only the gospel that has the power to save. Nothing or no one else can save. What I mean by fighting over the power of the gospel is that we must stand firm in our conviction that there is salvation in no one else or nothing else but Jesus Christ in him alone. There's only one way to the Father, and that is through Jesus Christ. There are not many ways. That's what we call pluralism. Jesus is the only way. Doing good works is not a way. Being a good person is not a way. When when you're talking about satisfying a holy God, How good is good? How do you ever know you've been good enough to be in the presence 
of Almighty God. You can't know, so you have to rely on the goodness of Jesus Christ. He is good. There is no sin or evil in him. But because we are in Christ, now he sees us not as the filthy sinners that we once were, but he sees us through the holy blood of Jesus Christ. He says you got to stand firm. You've got to stand together. But he also says in verse 28, you have to stand boldly. Verse 28, he says, and not being frightened in anything by your opponents. Paul says, gospel citizens stand boldly against opposition. They don't cower. They are not easily intimidated. They are not afraid, but they demonstrate, demonstrate courage for the sake of the gospel. This is not in my manuscript, but I think this, this goes for us. This goes to, in this American context, because we don't face a lot of persecution. But we oftentimes are afraid. There is fear in us when it comes to the gospel. That's why some of us won't share the gospel with our unsaved friends. We fear that they're going to think we're holier than thou. We fear that we might lose the relationship. We fear that, that they may judge us saying, you have no right to tell me about this gospel when you live the way you do. Paul says gospel citizens are bold because they don't rely on their words or on their own witness to save, but they rely on the Holy Spirit to do the work. My friend Josh Black would say something like this. He would say the word does the work. Not the witnesses. We're instruments. The word is what does the work. It is the Holy Spirit that has to change the depraved heart of man to, to, to turn them towards Jesus Christ. There is nothing in us. I don't care how good of a negotiator you are. I don't care how persuasive you can be. I don't care how pretty you are. Nothing in us can convince anybody to believe in Jesus Christ. We are too depraved to do that. Left on our own, we, we rebel against God. So it takes the, the mighty power of God to do it. So don't be scared. Stand boldly for Jesus Christ. But friends, liberalization has taken over our culture. They don't want us to stand on our convictions. They don't want us to have the conviction that all life is valuable in the womb. They don't want us to have that conviction that life starts at conception. Actually, that ain't, that's only half the truth. Life starts back in eternity past because God told Jeremiah, he says, before I, I knew you, before you were born, I knew you and I formed you. But Ephesians 1, he says, before the foundation of the world, I chose you. God already knew you before your mama knew you. They don't want us to have convictions about the sanctity of marriage. The marriage is between one woman and one man. 
They want us to be, they want us to believe that everybody ought to just be able to love whoever they want. We never said you couldn't love them. Our, our Christian ethic is to love, love our neighbor as ourselves, but love don't mean you got to marry them. They don't want us to have these convictions. Or they say, you can have that conviction, just don't, don't tell me about it. What's right for you is right for you. But what's right for me is right for me. They don't want us to have these convictions. And Paul says, do not be frightened. Stand boldly. Gospel citizens, they don't give an inch when it comes to God's truth. Paul says, don't be intimidated, don't be afraid, even if it comes at the cost of suffering. Verse 28, he says, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. That word granted in verse 28, he says it has been granted to you. That, verse, that word granted means to give graciously. <laughs> Paul's theology is that suffering for Christ is a gift. That's like one of them gifts you like, ooh, get that somebody else. <laughs> Lord, can I re-gift this? <laughs> Mm. Paul says, just like faith to be saved is a gift, so is suffering. Why does God allow saints to suffer? Go back to verse 28. He says, sometimes I allow you to suffer so that it's a sign to unbelievers. He says, sometimes... Your suffering is a proof to your enemies of their eventual destruction. Sometimes you, God allows you to suffer not for you, but for somebody else. Ooh. Job, come here. Won't he do it? Yes, he will. <laughs> That's Baptist right there. Won't he do it? <laughs> Come on, man, you help me out. <laughs> there was nothing wrong with Job hadn't necessarily done anything wrong to suffer the way he did. Here's what God says to Satan. Have you considered my All right, servant? What's the, what is the task, the duty of the servant? To serve the master. Sometimes your suffering has nothing to do with you. God is using that. He's using your suffering for his glory and some, maybe somebody else's own good. Hang tight. We're going to get back to the suffering at the end. He says not only is it a sign of their destruction, but it's also a sign of your salvation. Now, I, I, I understand this idea of when he says you're suffering the sign of your salvation, I, I understand it to be twofold. It's a sign to them and to you that you are definitely saved. But it's also a sign that you will be saved 
from your enemies. Let's go back to the first one. It's a sign that you are indeed saved. Here's what I believe. A Christian that doesn't suffer is suspect. I came to preach this morning. Snow and all. The snow going to get saved and everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> a Christian that doesn't suffer is suspect. Why you say that, Reverend? Remember, when you become saved, you move into a different kingdom. Colossians says we've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of Christ. These two kingdoms are at war all the time. So when you became a Christian, a follower of Christ, a disciple, you enlisted into the army of God. You are in spiritual warfare all the time because you've been transferred out of this kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of Christ. And the kingdom of darkness don't like it. And the goal of the kingdom of darkness is to prove your faith to be false. And to get you back into the kingdom of darkness. And so, so spiritual warfare means that sometimes I may get hit. Spiritual warfare says I may get wounded sometimes. That's all a part of suffering. Christians suffer. We suffer for the sake of Christ. But we suffer because that's what I, the pioneer of our faith, Jesus Christ, did. He suffered. Paul says it's a gift to suffer. But he says, watch this, watch this. He says that word bestow. Remember I told you it means a gracious gift. It's a gift of grace. Which means that when you suffer, it doesn't necessarily mean that you did anything to deserve it. So sometimes the answer to that question, why is this happening to me? The answer is grace. God graciously allows suffering or sends suffering to us to confirm our salvation, but also so that we may grow in our sanctification. Count it all joy when you find, uh, uh, all joy when you fall into various temptations, knowing this that the trying of your faith produces patience. That's God using trials and tribulations to grow you. So suffering can be sanctifying. Paul would teach us that suffering, we have encouragement because of our union with Christ. Comfort from his love. And fellowship because of the Holy Spirit. And affection and compassion complete my joy. Since all of this is true about us, encouragement because of our union with Christ. Comfort from, in, from his love. Fellowship because of the Holy Spirit. Complete my joy. Paul says, my joy is incomplete. You, you've given me some joy because of your faith and your friendship that was expressed through the financial gift you sent to me. But it's incomplete. You can complete my joy by being focused on others. Verse 2, here it is. 
complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Be of the same mind. To, to be of the same mind is to have the same attitude. It is to have a common way of thinking. I believe what Paul is doing is he's trying to shape a Christian gospel worldview into their minds. Paul is saying, let me give you a gospel worldview. I want you all to have this same gospel worldview, this same gospel perspective on life. He says, you got to have the same mind, the same attitude. But he then moves from the mind to the heart. He says you also have to have the same love. Love, friends, this is the Christian ethic. Love is not simply an emotion, it is an action. Paul says your thinking should give, give way to loving action. You are to act towards one another in a loving way. Be in full accord or harmonious. Paul, but what does this look like? He knew some of y'all was going to read this letter. What does it look like to be of the same mind and have the same love and be in full accord? He says it in verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. What does that look like? But in humility, count others more significant than yourself. Friends, to be a gospel citizen is to be others-oriented. Yep, I'm preaching last week's message again. To be a gospel citizen is to be others-oriented. When, when we focus on others rather than ourselves, then we will do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Selfish ambition is to pursue something for one's own benefit and not considering the cost or the effect it would have on others. We see selfish ambition all the time, right here in the church. Just a couple of weeks ago, there was this major article that came out about sexual abuse among Southern Baptist churches. Women have been sexually abused. Men, uh, uh, children have been sexually abused by people in leadership. They do that, they get found out, and then what does the church do? They cover it up. Selfish ambition, why do they cover it up? Reputation, let's back up, let's be honest with one another. Money. Because when y'all leave, y'all take y'all's money with y'all. That's what y'all do every summer when you go on vacation. I'm just playing. Actually, giving goes up at the British church during the summer. Hallelujah. Praise God. I, I'm being serious. I'm praising God for that. Y'all, when I tell people that, when I tell other pastors that, they're like, really? Hey, what did God tell me? You preach the gospel. I'll take care of the rest. But selfish ambition is we don't want to lose members who's going to take their money with them. We got bills to pay. We done built these multi-million dollar facilities, and so we got to pay for them some kind of way. So, and what has happened is churches, instead of living below their means, 
We're going to build these million-dollar facilities that we have to cater to the consumeristic needs of Christians. Selfish ambition. This is what I want, so this is what I'm going to do. We see this all the time in the church. People taking positions of leadership in the church because of the status, the power, the prestige. Selfish ambition. It may be a pastor taking a position just because of the power and the money that goes along with the position. But it's not just in the churches in the world, too. We see this all the time with politicians. Right here in Wichita, people are under investigation. Just read the paper, y'all. Selfish ambition. I still read the Dallas Morning News um, every day. And one of the things that's in the Dallas Morning News right now is they're talking about that multiple city council members are being indicted and investigated over bribery. Selfish ambition. Paul says, don't do this. This is not consistent with the gospel. He's going to show us here in a few verses. He says, we're not defined by selfish ambition or conceit. But we should be defined by humility. What does humility look like? Humility looks like considering others more significant than ourselves. In today's church, we would call that heresy. You mean it's not all about me? Paul would say something like, may it never be. Humility means I'm considering others more significant than myself. Friends, one easy way is to stop thinking so highly of yourself. Why do we think highly of ourselves? Because of our education? Because of our economic class? Because of what we drive? Because of our ethnicity? Because of our political affiliation? Our theological bent? I'm Calvinist. I'm Arminian. I'm Wesleyan. I'm Pentecostal. Why do we consider ourselves more significant than we ought to? Sometimes it's because of our educational preferences. I prefer homeschool. That's what good Christians do. I prefer private school. That's what good Christians do. I prefer classical education because that's what good Christians do. I prefer public school. That's what good Christians do. What? None of those are wrong in and of themselves. Don't get me wrong here. There's great things. That's pros and cons to each one of them. But sometimes, because we picked one of those, we think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. Humility. 
Humility means we look not only to the interest of our own, but to the interest of others as well. Friends, the only way to do this, to consider the interests of others, you must know the interest of others. But some of us can't know the interests of others because we stick with people that look like us, talk like us, think like us, walk like us, work where we work. We, there is no scattering among our uh, uh, circles of influence or our Christian bubbles. And we don't know the interest of others. Some of the problems in the church today is because we don't consider the interest of others. Some of the, one of the reasons that, that, that we don't have more multi-ethnic churches is because we don't consider the interest of others. We consider our own interest. The interest of, I want this style of music. We consider our own interest. I, I want this style of preacher. has nothing to do with the content. We, 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 uh, we consider our own interest. We want six flags over Jesus for our kids. <laughs> we consider our own interest. I want, I, we, we, I want a one-hour worship service. <laughs> but I'm going to go to a three-hour football game right after. And let me just say this since I'm out there. We consider our own interests. We won't reserve the worship and not that charismatic stuff. And y'all sit up here and tell God. Y'all tell me that y'all don't know how to worship and how to praise, how to express yourself. Watch when the Kansas City Chiefs score a touchdown. Watch when the Jay, thank you, babe. Watch when the Jayhawks actually win a game. <laughs> win the pennant. Watch when the Patriots get rewarded for their cheating. <laughs> I saw someone I know at a, at a basketball game uh, this past week. And, you know, reserve, very analytical, doctor, all this other kind of stuff. Uh, and um, there was a blatant foul that was not called. <laughs> that reserve doctor, can you believe he got out of his seat? What are you doing? Did you not see that? Open your eyes. Are you blind? You need these. I'm off topic here, but my point is, y'all know how to praise. Amen. Patrick Mahomes throwing them no-look passes. Oh, my gosh. Did you see that? God woke you up this morning. You ought to be, oh, my gosh. He woke me up this morning. Look at me. It was my promise, but I'm here.
Now, this can go the wrong way, too. This ain't about y'all. This is about me. I've tried my best to consider y'all's interest. And what I've done is catered to majority culture because of this multi-ethnic church, and I've put a lid on my praise to make some of y'all comfortable. And I didn't tell y'all this last week. I told y'all the Holy Spirit was messing with me. He said, you're free. He said, if you feel like hooping, and I'm going to show y'all what that is later. He said, go for it. He said, if you feel like running, take a lap. All I need is the elders to buy me some oxygen. If you feel like clapping, clapping. If you feel like shouting, shout. He said, you sit up there and say every Sunday that you said, I ain't ready yet. He said, if you preach the gospel, I'll take care of the rest. And you've trusted me for the most part except people accepting your praise and your worship. The Holy Spirit reminded me. He said, Brandon, you ought not try to satisfy people who don't know your story. Because if they knew your story, they'd be telling you, you need to praise some more. Because you about lost your mind, but I kept you from losing your mind. So, yeah, you don't criticize my praise. You don't know my story. I about lost my marriage, but God preserved that thing. Didn't he do it? Yes, he did. And that's why I praise the way I do. Why you preach the way I do? Because I love the Lord God with all my heart, mind, and soul. And I'd be doggone if the Dallas Cowboys get a better praise from me than the Lord who saved my soul. Matter of fact, the reason I praise the way I do is because the Bible said if you don't praise me, he'll have the rocks cry out. And I'll be doggone if a rock gonna cry out for what God has done for me. So if I scare you, take it up with the Holy Spirit. But this message the Holy Spirit told me last week, this ain't just for Brandon. Because that's some of you right now. You want to get on your, on your feet and, and praise God in the middle of the sermon. Yeah. Yeah. Go to a black church. Sean, Sean, you, Sean, I've been there. During the whole sermon, they popping up like popcorn. Yeah. <laughs> Why? Because when you hear the truth of the Lord, that auto, see, worship is a response to revelation. When you hear the truth of God, there ought to be a response from the people of God. And so for some people, that may mean in the middle of a sermon, I'm going to stand to my feet and say amen to the truth. And the Spirit has said to, to some of you, worship. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Last week, this Holy Spirit said, go to Emmanuel and literally take the chains off of him. He told me, go, go to Dexter and take the chains off of him. I don't have time to walk all the way back there to Corey. But he literally said to me, take the chains off of him. Where was I at? The interest 
of others. Y'all, this is so important in a multi-ethnic church. There are so many opportunities for us to be divided. I want gospel music. I want Christian music. I want hymns. I want contemporary music. I want it dark in the sanctuary. And let me say something about that since y'all got me out here. <laughs> now, lighting does affect mood. <laughs> lighting does affect mood. Y'all know it does. <laughs> Yo, we can't, we can't produce a move of the Holy Spirit, though. Amen. Amen. Now, one of my friends told me, you know, I like it dark so that I can just worship like I want to. <laughs> worship. It's the object of our worship is God. If other people are looking at you and judging you and making fun of you, they sin. So whether it's lights on or dark, that all not matter to how we worship our almighty God. And for those who like it dark, you're going to hate our next building. Because I'm cranking all the light up in there. I want to see y'all. Uh-uh, uh-uh. I need preaching material, so I need to see y'all. <laughs> All right. Friends, to, to, to preserve unity, we must humbly consider the interests of others. What does this look like? I'm glad you asked, and I'll be done. Verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Gospel citizens follow the example of Jesus Christ. Follow, uh, uh, gospel citizens are not only focused on others, but they follow the example of Christ. They are others-focused, but Christ-centered. Paul says, Christ himself was God. He had the very form of God, the outward appearance of God, meaning that he was clothed in the glory of God that no uh, man is able to behold without dying. He had all the attributes and privileges of being God. If anyone had a reason to be proud, it was Jesus Christ. He was God. Yet, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. That word grasp means it's the, it's the picture of a riber. When, when they go in, they're, they're, they're trying to just get something real fast, and so they snatch it because they know they've got limited time. And so Paul, Paul is saying, this, 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 he didn't, Jesus didn't uh, consider equality uh, uh, something to be grasped, to be snatched for his own advantage. 
Christ did not consider his equality with God something to be taken advantage of for his own personal benefit. He did not use his equality with God, his status, for his own selfish ambition. What did he do with it? Rather, he emptied himself. By taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. How did God empty himself? I don't have time to go through all the theories about the self-emptying of God. But, but, but here's how I would sum it up. He emptied, emptied himself in that he freely exchanged his pre-existent divine beings to, 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 to take it on common human earthly existence. He, he took on, though he was in the form of God, took on the form of a slave. That's how he emptied himself. He, 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 he exchanged, he cloaked himself in humanity. Now, let me make something very clear. He didn't empty himself of his godness. No, 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 no. He didn't empty himself of his divinity. Christ, he, he, when he became man, he was still God. But he humbled himself to the limitations and the humiliations that come with being a man. And being found in human form, verse 8, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Friends, this is the perfect picture of humility. Christ took on the lowly stature, nature, and position of a slave, of a man, for your sake. He died not for his own benefit, not for his own crimes, but for your benefit and for your crimes. Christ, consider the interest of you and I and died for our sake. Paul takes the time to to make sure you get this because he says he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Friends, this is emphatic. This this would have been startling for Roman citizens. Death on a cross was not a heroic death. Death on a cross was not a noble death. Death on a cross was shameful and disgraceful. Friends, the cross displayed the lowest depths of human depravity and cruelty. Death on a cross was the most brutal form of torture and execution. Roman law reserved the cross for the worst of criminals and and the most violent insurrectionists and only those who were slaves or foreigners. A Roman citizen would never be put to death by way of the cross. Cicero called death on a cross a most cruel and disgusting punishment. He said, the cross is the worst extreme of the tortures inflicted upon slaves. He said, to bind a Roman citizen is a crime. To flog him is an abomination. To slay him is almost an act of murder. To crucify him is what? There is no fitting word that can possibly describe so horrible a deed. And friends, this is our Lord and Savior. 
This is gospel humility. We see the humiliation of Christ and that he died by way of the cross. Friends, I'm hoping you get it. This is what gospel humility looks like. This is what it looks like to consider the interest of others. That's the humiliation of Christ. But Paul doesn't end with the humiliation of Christ. He ends with the exaltation of Christ. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven, on the earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. God exalts the humble as the principle. Jesus Christ has been highly exalted. He's in a class of his own. God the Father has, the text says, bestowed on him the name that is above every name. They mess, they mess with the language again in the ESV. The word bestow is the same word that's used in verse 29 when Paul says that God has granted to us to suffer. Same term in the Greek. Bestow and grant are the same word, top and tail. Paul is tying the two together. He's essentially teaching the Philippians what he explicitly taught in 2 Timothy 2.12. If we suffer with him, <laughs> we will reign with him. He has given him the name that is above every name. What is the name above every name? Hold on, hold on, hold on. Hold on. It's not what you think. Think. Just think, church. He's always had the name Jesus. The name that is above every name is Lord. Yahweh. Paul here, he's quoting Isaiah. In Isaiah, it is said that, that, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. So Paul now has in mind the, the servant of the Lord in, in Isaiah. And so he's quoting that section in, in Isaiah 42. Here's, the, here's what it says, chapter, verse 8. I am the Lord. The Lord is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. The Lord is his name. The name that is above every name that has been stowed on Jesus Christ is Lord. Why is that significant? Because at the end of time, every knee will bow. In heaven, on the earth, and under the earth. One day, even Satan's going to have to bow down. And acknowledge him as Lord of Lords. And friend, you can either do it now voluntarily or you'll do it eventually in judgment. He says every time we'll confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. What we have here, and this is how I ended our sermon, is a wonderful picture of the Lordship of Christ. Jesus is Lord. He is our master. He is our ruler. So then what is the response to the lordship of Christ? It's in the text. First, worship. 
Every knee will bow and worship to the Lord. Jesus is Lord. How do we respond? Worshipfully. Jesus is Lord. How do we respond? Confessionally. In other words, every knee, every tongue will confess, will give praise to this Lord. But more than anything, church, what I want us to get as far as the Lordship of Christ is that because we declare him to be Lord, worship team, you can come back. What the Lordship of Christ demands of each and every one of us is obedience. For us to proclaim that Jesus is Lord is for us to say that we are his servants. We are his slaves. And we will obey his will. All of this, at the end of the day, Paul says, is to the glory of God the Father. How do we give glory to God? How do we bring glory to God? By living under the Lordship of Christ. He is Lord. You can't make him Lord. He is Lord. We must respond through worship, through praise, through obedience to our Lord. This Lord has been highly exalted. He's reigning, ruling, and running the universe from this highly exalted position. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Friends, Paul's word to us today is we should live as gospel citizens on the earth. And that requires unity and humility. Let's stand together. Let's confess amongst one another and to one another that he is Lord. He has risen from the dead, and he is Lord.